Welcome to The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On The Purposeful Project podcast, we share real-life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can simply visit purposefulproject.com. Ash, welcome. Hey, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Where are you, uh, you. Where are you talking to us from today? I'm based in uh, San Francisco, just south of San Francisco. So oh, it's early morning. Wonderful. Well, um, live from London here, as you know, and uh, really interested if you could kindly start off the podcast by just telling our audience that don't know you a little bit about who you are and your history. Um, yeah, so, so my name is Yash. I, um, I previously was the, the founder and CEO of a company called Eve Sleep, which was a sort of direct-to-consumer mattress and sleep business. Uh, we launched that back in 20, uh, 2015 and then IPO'd the company to the public in 2017 and I left there a year after that. Uh, and then more recently, in the last sort of year and a half, I've been working on trying to create a digital sex app, actually, uh, called Lover. Um, so that's sort of highlight, but happy to go into anything in more detail that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, how can that not be interesting? That's uh, just awesome. Well, um, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I, I love my um, audience to get a gauge of, of how you think. So I'd like to ask this concept of what is success for you today with your present business and, and in your personal life how do you define success um we're very early stage so we're, we're sort of in a nice period right now you know in previous businesses as they've sort of got bigger and later there's more metrics to look at and when you look at success you look at things like revenue and growth and things but we're still really at a stage of conceptualizing a product and so I think what's, I don't know if I would call it success necessarily, but what's really fun and interesting is just the kind of creativity that goes into this part of the process. So we started with a sort of vague idea of, of, of sort of an interesting category that we wanted to go into. And over the last year, we've been really developing uh, and iterating on the design of a product and sort of seeing that come to life and starting to see it become pretty cool is really an exciting thing to be in. Um, so I guess the success at the moment for us is just the sheer enjoyment of building a product from scratch, building a, a team from scratch and, and seeing a sort of company take life really, which is quite, I think for any entrepreneur, is always a period that you end up looking back on as with rose-tinted glasses, you know, it's quite a sort of just a innocent and fun time always in a startup, I think those early, early days. And we're very much in that right now. Mm. So it feels like you're saying live in the now, really. That's that success, kind of how I sum up my, my interpretation of what you're saying. Enjoy the enjoy the journey you're on, and, and uh, yeah, I agree with you. The beginning parts of building a business, I mean, it, it actually it can also be very stressful, right? Because you you want to make it work. Sounds like you're taking it in your stride, though. How have you managed to have that mindset? Um, you know, I don't know about taking it in our stride, but we I've been doing startups really since 2008 now, uh, and we've had so many things have gone wrong for us over the time. Some things have gone quite well, and. I think you start to get a little bit desensitized to it. You know, you start at the beginning, it's such a, I mean, it's still quite an emotional roller coaster, really. But um, I guess you start realizing that when things are bad, they're never quite as bad as they seem. And also when things are going well and you're getting a bunch of praise, it's, there's always some disaster around the corner as well. So it's kind of, I think just over time, you get a bit thicker skinned with it, really. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think like you're saying, it's an interesting point. I, I personally built 18 companies. I think you also realise wow. that it's it's about that uh, that journey, right? That experience, and that you, you know, breathe it in and breathe it out because as the business gets bigger and more complicated, it actually doesn't necessarily get easier. Um, yeah, and and sometimes it's you know it's less fun as well. I, I, mm. I think as it sort of as a business goes through stages, I think they're all different, so it's hard to compare. But I, I definitely have always loved this early stage thing. It feels a little bit more scrappy. It feels a bit more creative, and also quite a lot more dynamic. You know, there's no real process to speak of. There's no constraints really. We just, except for our resources and 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 you know and, and sort of how fast we're able to move. But in terms of sort of ideas and things, it's just quite fun having such a blank canvas at this stage. Um, so yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a really fun period. And I was looking back at what you've done. I mean, you've, you've done some amazing things. Um, I, I, mean, I don't want to go too far back, uh, but, you know, I, I see that uh, you, you were leading Zalando in the UK, for example. That, that must have been an experience and a half. Yeah, that was a really interesting project because I actually, with, with a guy who ended up becoming my co-founder at Eve later, um, we jointly launched Zalando in the UK. So it wasn't even just running it, but we we, we sort of took it from no employees, no website, no revenue to building out the whole UK team and running it for the first year and a bit of its operations in the UK. Um, but Zalando in Europe was already then a monster, really. So we were working out of Berlin and, you know, even just the offices in the warehouse were were next level, really, in terms of the scale of what I had seen in an internet company. And that was back in 2000 and when was that 2008 maybe or seven um i can't remember but it's, you know a long time ago um and uh and then yeah sort of the, the scale that they've got to since then has been quite just awe inspiring really but yeah it was i think what was exciting about working at zalando was it was kind of early stage startup from our point of view in terms of the uk was a brand new market but with the the sort of scale and the, the 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 machine really of the bigger European Zalando behind us as well. So it was it's a very different experience to some of the other startups I've done, but fascinating and an incredible company actually. I think I learned more working at Zalando than any other business I was ever at, just because the quality of the people was so high, uh, and and I guess the business was quite complicated with the sort of amount of SKUs they had with the logistics, the warehousing and things. So it was it was a real eye-opening and sort of learning experience for me so i remember it really fondly i know a few people at zalando it's also an incredible culture right a very hard-working culture there too very focused yeah they've done they at least they had it then i'm sure it's similar now but they had that kind of quite rare balance of really hard-working really driven but still just kind of quite fun and cool and just Mm. a a good place to work you know not easy to keep it like that as you scale yeah, exactly. And places tend to go one way or the other. They either become a bit kind of, you know, crazy, disorganized startup, which is fun, but a bit of a joke, or they become very process driven and a bit um, not as exciting to work in. Mm. So, yeah, so Zalando was um, was a great experience in that sense. What do you think makes the difference between going one way or the other? Do you think it's a good HR department led by the CEO or do you think a good HR department on their own can do it? Or is it all, all about the, the leadership? What makes a company go that, that kind of negative route, I guess, the more structured route? I think it comes down to leadership fundamentally because even the HR team sort of is a product of the of the founding team and the company culture, you know, and it's sort of so, and, and an HR department can look in multiple ways. So I think you need a good HR to the department to support that as it scales. But I think the sort of core values and the, the, what the company stands for and the type of people you want in it, that comes from the founders. And I think 
what happens in a lot of startups is you get normally founders of people who might know each other, um, you know, before they start. And you get quite a sort of close knit early founding team, I think, which is made up of either friends or ex-colleagues or family members. And so that sort of culture builds from that, really, from the dynamic of that team, really. And I think a good a good founding team can sort of spread that through the organization as it scales. And it's definitely a challenge. You know, I think it's easy the first 20, 50 hires, everyone kind of knows each other, has lunch together, goes out for drinks together. And then it starts to become this kind of entity that, that almost starts to control itself, you know, and you stop knowing everybody who works there and you stop it sort of takes on a bit of a life of its own, but I think still embedding that early uh, cultural DNA that comes from the founding team. And mm. I think it's, it's really important actually. And I've seen how it can change at startups mm. when founders leave. I think even at Eva, there was a lot of that as our sort of founding team shifted out. It, felt it, it began to look like a very, very different company very quickly mm. with only just a few of the core founders going really. So, I, so I, I believe it comes from that. I agree. I've seen it happen from an investor level. When investors come in, they, they bring their own culture to the table, don't they, sometimes? And that can change the business. And Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I personally, um, I'm actually keeping my team small uh, for what I'm doing now because I don't want the culture to change because as it grows, it gets quite hard to keep it fun um, And as, as you scale up. So it's, it's a really interesting subject. How are, you, how are you, what's your plan to keep the culture you've got at your present company well, I think it was interesting what you were saying. As you were saying it, I felt something very similar. Like when, when we went into Eve, it was our first venture-backed startup where we were the kind of founder CEOs. So before that, we had bootstrapped a few businesses and we had worked at other startups like Zalando or Groupon. But, um, and I think we just got caught up in the like, grow, 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 like, you know, and, and, and just had more revenue, more revenue, more revenue. And then that meant hiring more people. And it sort of, it got big so fast, which was exciting. But I think that it was also a little bit out of control at times in terms of the speed that we grew and just keeping it under wraps. So what I think what we're doing now, because what we're doing is a lot more complicated in many ways, you know, it's something that doesn't really exist out there before. It's We're sort of having to conceptualize a whole new product, really, and do something that hasn't been done. I think we're going about it much more methodically and really being much much more careful of who we hire, bringing in the right people, controlling budgets much more, and really focusing on just building great product to start. So it's been, I don't know if it's the nature of the business or it comes from learnings from Eve, but it definitely feels very, very different um, to, 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 to that company. Um, and I think keeping it smaller, I think we learned that, you know, hire slowly but get rid of people fast it's not a pleasant phrase but it's really true i think you know having people in the company who aren't quite right or don't fit the culture who aren't good enough or bring the level down it has a very harmful effect and so we've been this time much much more careful about who we bring in really taking time to bring people in and and and, and yeah and sort of doing it with a smaller team and a much smaller operation means and and it's been different uh, partly that's been through covid as well i think like with sort of you know uh uh, remote teams there's a sort of it lends itself a bit. it's harder to just build a massive 100 person team when no one's ever met each other um, so yeah so we've been we've been more strategic a little bit more focused keeping it leaner um, and and then I think just really trying to nail the product before um, before scaling you're talking about something that I really want my listeners to pick up on a lot of people ask us you know how do you build a culture and um, I think what you're talking about is is a large part of the answer. I don't want my audience to miss it because in, in, in a in a soundbite there you've just mentioned about you know, I, I I guess the nuance of it is you can either hire slowly and then you have to fire less people because they don't fit within your culture, or you can hire fast but be prepared to fire fast as well. 
you know maybe yeah. it's an elongation to 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 your you know your very good point there because I, I think for a lot of people and they when you're desperate to find someone like we're actually hiring right now my organization we're looking as, as everyone is for social media people but the last thing we want to do is hire the wrong person then post out the wrong message and you know our culture gets destroyed uh, and, and so on but it, it is yeah. when you're desperately in need of people to help you somehow it's like oh you're available great you don't say you're available but you know can i just check your moral code and can i can i just have a you know a bit more of an understanding of what matters to you truly and who's got time for that right um yeah so i mean i think you're completely right we've had it as well we've in the past where we've just sort of brought someone on eventually because we just didn't have a better candidate and you sort of sometimes know deep down that it might not work out and then you always end up regretting it but so that's been quite a good learning i think we're more a little bit more patient now and also a little bit more willing to push back on stuff so i think before you know when we started eve it started to grow quite quickly and then investors were happy so we were just like oh let's do more of that and just you know we we never really thought even if that was necessarily the right thing for the business we just kind of got the sense that everyone was happy with this super fast growth and so we should do that i think now we're being a little bit more comfortable saying to investors like this is going to take time you know it's going to be a while before we start to really put money behind marketing and budgets and we want to just focus on product and we're not going to be coming to you with like big revenue numbers for the first year and and that's worked surprisingly well i mean when i was first kind of putting that message out I thought it would be frowned upon, but I think actually people are quite accepting of the idea that certain businesses take time to figure out. Um, and so I think if you almost set those boundaries and those expectations early, it makes it easier to make smart, rational decisions down the line and not be kind of pressured into doing stuff a bit more, you know, panicky. Mm. I think I think it's a, another great insight, I, I, I guess, for people building businesses um, or learning to build businesses and, and don't have your experience. There, there is definitely an element of um, if you if people, of course, love the idea of growing fast. You've said it a few times. Very exciting. We were growing fast, but I think something along the line goes wrong. Good people leave because they feel undervalued, and, and, and bad people stay, and you don't notice it. And, and that in, its, in itself can mean the wheels come off on a fast-moving train, right? <laughs> So and, and people yeah. people actually care more about enjoying their day to day than than they do even about the money. I know it's I know it's cheesy, but I, I think that's true. I mean, people working for me and what I'm doing, they're not doing it for the money. You know, there's plenty of people that pay them a lot more money than 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 I do. Um, but it, but I think that as you say, that kind of culture piece is is so important. Hey, look, I wanted to jump back to your early years because because there's so much here I want to unbox. Um, you, you you've not always. Uh, um, been in or not you've had you work for Centra of course um, it might feel like a lifetime ago now but you know you I, for my audience who are thinking of you know becoming entrepreneurs or, or, or want to understand how you become an entrepreneur well first of all do you think entrepreneurs are born or bred and secondly how did you end up getting into this entrepreneurial space what was your journey it was very lucky really when I think or uh, very sort of happens and I think it is for many people I'd always had some sense of wanting to have my own business and you know never really knew what that meant or how I would do that my dad was an entrepreneur and we had sort of a bit of a history of that in my family so it always kind of seemed quite glamorous and exciting to me um, but had no real idea about how to go about it and wasn't wasn't necessarily so one of those really entrepreneurial guys was like building things or doing all these projects. I was just, you know, finished university, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I went to Accenture because it felt like a good general business kind of background, but I didn't enjoy it really. I didn't feel I thrived very well in that scenario. I don't think I thrive as well when there's like very heavy process and things. And so started to think about more like how could I get out of this and start doing something for myself. And um, I was introduced through uh, complete chance with a guy called Alex Samwer, who's one of three German brothers, 
who at the time had had some pretty big successes selling a clone of eBay to eBay and then doing a, a ringtone company, Jamster, that was most famous for the crazy frog thing. Um, and, and was sort of the big success guys in Europe, I guess, at that time. Although they were still a lot smaller than now. This was back in 2008. And I'm, I was introduced to Alex Samwer, had a meeting with him, and he was sort of saying how Poland for them, my, my family's Polish and I speak Polish, how Poland is a market that they were looking at. The, the model of the brothers was to kind of take successful businesses from either the US or Western Europe and build them in countries that didn't have those businesses yet. And so they were looking at emerging markets like Poland, Turkey, Spain as places to start building businesses. And I guess at that time, they didn't have such a strong network in some of those markets. And so I guess for me as a kind of general business guy um, who spoke the language and, and was like, you know, just kind of energetic to do something, uh, they set me up starting this price comparison company in Poland. And it all happened within a couple of weeks of meeting them, really. I had a quit Accenture and set up a, a price comparison site in Poland. And... We were sort of building that. It was going okay, but then the Sam was spotted Groupon in the US, and they decided that that was going to be a massive, the next big internet thing, and they wanted to kind of clone it in Europe. And so a lot of their this sort of smaller businesses that they were working on almost overnight transferred into Groupon clones, and we were hiring sales teams and figuring out how to how to how to do the Groupon model, which was very different to what we were doing at the time because we were trying to build a price comparison engine in Poland. Um, and so, uh, so suddenly I found myself as the head of what they were calling it City Deal, um, was their Groupon clone in Poland, uh, which was, I think, three or four months it took them to sell to Groupon for an enormous stake in Groupon the company. And, and then the Samuel brothers became effectively the guys running Groupon globally. Um, my wife was in the UK at the time, so I asked to transfer to the UK team. The Polish team was taken over by a friend of mine, and I ended up becoming one of the, the management team of Groupon UK. So quite quickly, really, from like Accenture to little startup to being you know, in charge of a pretty big organization in Poland and the UK. Um, and it was a lot of luck, but I think like with a lot of entrepreneurs, you sort of have to be open to it, you know, like I was introduced to this guy, Alex Samuel, I never heard of him, flew to Munich to meet him, or Berlin, sorry, um, and then, and then I just took the opportunity, because I just sort of thought it sounded interesting, and I thought if it doesn't work out, I'm young enough, that it doesn't really matter, there'll be another job, or I'll go do an MBA or something, you know, I just kind of felt, it wasn't like I loved Accenture so much, and so I think when opportunities like that come up, and they are sort of out there, you know, you just have to take them really. Um, but but that, that was my journey into it. it was quite opportunistic. I think people go into it in all sorts of crazy ways really. Uh, and everyone's is different. So I don't know that there's a sort of a right route or a right bit of advice that you can necessarily give people. Felt like you, you followed, you you followed your gut from what I'm, I'm listening to. You felt you just went with your instincts and followed the path. A that, yeah, a lot of that. And I think just be willing to... I don't know, just willing to fail, I guess. You know, it's, mm. it's not that bad. It's like a lot of stuff in life. If you kind of are scared to fail, then you never start, really. How old you were you at this stage when you when you kind of jumped on that plane and went and saw Alex? 26, How old were you? I think. 26, 26. 26, 27, something like that. And to be honest, I've been in, in startups since, ever since, really. And one of the myths, I think, about startups is like, you know, if I start my own business, I won't have a salary, I won't get make any money. But... When I went into, into their organization was called Rocket. I went in there as a kind of founder of a company. They gave me a quite a large equity stake in that business and they gave me a salary. And that tends to be how it works. You know, you can mm. sort of bootstrap something while you're 
while you're doing your career, but you can also go out and try and raise money from friends or family or other investors and give yourself a salary. So I think that was quite eye-opening for me, that it doesn't have to be such a risk. It's not like you're sort of living on pot noodles for three years, you know, hoping to, to, that something lands. It was, it was, you know, it's hard work and there's there's definitely sacrifices you make to do it, but it, but it wasn't like kind of living on the breadline type of story that I had assumed entrepreneurship is. I agree that is a, a misleading image of entrepreneurship. I mean, there are, I actually have uh, worked in my first company for a while with no money, but then the company made money and, and, and then I paid myself. And, you know, but then later my second company, I didn't have to go through the same pain because the first company I made, I'd made some money. You know, so there's always going to yeah. be that first stepping stone where you take a low salary when you get a job, right? I mean, everyone has to start somewhere, right? It's, uh, but you're right. I think there's this image you, you're going to be broke. I mean, Rocket Internet was a particular... I mean, for my listeners, those that don't know it, go Google it. Rocket Internet was a, is a particular exception how they built that it's business. They, they pioneered well, it. When I went there, it was 2000 and... I think late 2007, early 2008. And they had 30 people then, you know? Mm. So it was really... Wow, you went there early. She got 10% yeah, so of Rocket. That would have been good. What's that, sorry? She got 10% of Rocket. That would have been good. That would have been good. Yeah, unfortunately. I didn't really, it's weird back then. I didn't quite understand the value of equity and what to negotiate for. I was probably trying to get like 10 grand more on my annual salary, you know, but you're uh, right. That would have been quite so game-changing. Good advice. Um, get equity early. That would have been, if you were one of I the 30 in the early stages of Rocket, that, that they, they made billions, right? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I was sort of a bit on the side of that because we were a startup that was funded by Rocket. So I wasn't part of that kind of core team, but I knew all of them, you know, and you're right. A lot of them made a lot of money and went on to really exciting uh, things as well. Um, but yeah, it was it was great, really. I mean, I, I loved the experience. It was Rocket has quite a ferocious reputation for being um uh, for, for, for being quite ruthless and quite hard culture. But I personally loved it. I felt like just being given the chance to build businesses and to have the experience of those guys behind you and the sort of the energy and, and budgets and things was, was really fantastic to do for a few years and just kind of learn a bit about how one way to build companies. It's not the only way, but one way to build companies. Mm, yeah, in a very unique way as well. I, I was reading uh, a little bit about you and um, I've got a three-year-old uh, baby boy and uh, yes uh, he, he's actually um, we're, we're, he, well, his mother's from Hong Kong and I'm from England so um, so but he lives in England right now so I often said well, you know what if we moved to Hong Kong and what would it, what was his life be like now I, was, I say that because uh, for my audience you, you know you you your family moved from Warsaw to the UK when you were three years old so I'm yeah. really interested like one you know do you remember it two do you think it's affected your life and and three where do you feel like you're actually from um, so no, I don't remember it, although I've heard kind of stories about it and I guess I've sort of formulated some memories from stories told about it. Um, it formulated my life in quite an interesting way because my parents were political refugees. So they, if, if you were to move to Hong Kong, I think it'd be in quite different circumstances. We moved over here. My dad was a surgeon in Poland, you know, educated, successful guy. And we came to the UK and it was very much, you know, we, we didn't have money even for a place to live. So we lived at his sister's house in a room, you know, for the first couple of years. And then, and then at my, and then at his aunt's house for the next few years until he sort of built himself up. And so I think my, my kind of experience of it was always feeling a bit like a bit of an outsider, I think when I was little and a bit like, um, 
not as well off as some of you know the other people that we would hang out with and know and stuff and we later late lived in uh, refugee housing and stuff so so not that that was a bad thing but it, it's just that it felt I, I definitely felt a little bit like a, a duck out of water whatever the phrase is you know and I always felt a little and I think maybe because of that I've always kind of liked doing my own thing um I think it could be linked to that but um so that, so that was sort of what it was like for me. And then in terms of what was your, your, your third question? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's just an interesting story. I mean, I, I guess the path I'm trying to follow is, is also, you know, did, did your father have an influence on you becoming an entrepreneur? I mean, being a successful surgeon in Warsaw and then having to live that existence where perhaps, uh, you know, refugee status, that must, that must have affected you and it must have been quite hard for him. I think it was very hard for him. I think for me, I was probably too young to know a lot of this stuff or to really, you know, when you're a kid, like you enjoy playing football with your mates in the park and kind of, you know, or being allowed to watch TV on a, you know, Friday evening or something. It's, I don't think you notice this stuff so much. I wasn't so aware of it. It was more when I went to secondary school. I got a scholarship to a private secondary school and there I felt very much sort of different you know in terms of like the, uh, where other people were coming from and as I was sort of getting a bit older became more conscious of it um and I think my dad being an entrepreneur had an impact yeah I liked you know I was just kind of as a kid I liked going to his company and seeing he had like an office and seeing there were people that worked for him something about that just always made me really proud of him you know mm. um and so uh so yeah I'm sure it had an impact on me what about but your I mother think- was, was your mother an entrepreneur or no so she did a lot of I mean when we came over it was you know she they told me that my because my at the time Poland wasn't in the EU so he couldn't really qualify as a surgeon here without always sorry in the UK without having to redo all of his medical exams and his English wasn't very good so he could he kept failing his medical exams and he was working on building sites and stuff my mum was working in like you know cafes and hairdressers and things beauty salons so they, they were not you know they were not really very wealthy and that was only really when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989-90 that he was able to go back to Poland because he wasn't allowed back um, while the communists were in power otherwise he would have been put in jail Um, so he only went back in 1990 and then he set up a company importing pharmaceuticals to uh to the uh to to, to poland which was like you know in the communist times a pretty gray market and then it just kind of did well and everything changed for us really but um yeah so that, that was his story why did uh, I mean just curiosity um, and sorry if I'm prying a bit but why, why would your father be arrested what exactly does refugee status how does it play out what happened how can a surgeon be um, so so marked as it were in, in, in Warsaw um, it's a fascinating story at least to me he he was at the time there was martial law in Poland which meant that the Soviet army was basically on the streets and there was a curfew because it was a time of uprising against the the Soviets, which eventually led to the, the dropping of the Berlin Wall, um, and as and, and as a result, there was quite a lot of police beatings of people and things like that. And he was working illegally as trying to help in churches in the evenings. They would bring in people who had been beaten up or couldn't go to a hospital because they were some kind of political dissident. And he was trying to sort of operate on them and trying to help save their lives. And a kid came in who was beaten. Uh, to death by the communist militia and before he died he told my dad uh, that it was the police that had beaten him and it ended up becoming a big international story because the kid's mum was a very famous poet I don't think they knew that at the time and so he became a sort of symbol of the uprising against the communists in Poland like there's 
posters about him, songs were written about him, books were written about him. And my dad testified in Parliament, actually, in this case about the Polish government. And he said that, and, and, the, and the, the government in Poland, the, the, the communist government, tried to say that he was beaten up in a drunken fight. But he told my dad what happened before he died. So my dad told the story of what had happened. Uh, and as a result, would never have been allowed to go back. So his, I mean, his story is a lot, a lot more interesting than mattresses and sex apps. But um, <laughs> so, so, well, your yeah, story's so not finished yet. I would just say, you know, <laughs> plenty of time to, uh, you know, overthrow the British government and give us one that knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think I'll stay away from that. But um, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so I was always incredibly proud of that, really. Um, and and then, then so he, we weren't able to, none of us were able to go back to Poland until 1990. So between 1984 and 1990, I never went. And then he sort of set up his company there and we, we started to be there more and more, really. And, and where um, do you feel like you're from now? If you, if you, you know, you've, clearly you've been UK, you've spent a lot of time in Warsaw, you're in the US now. Where, where are you from? You know, I, I once heard something that Peter Ustinov said on an interview randomly that really resonated from, for me. I don't know if you know me, he played Pyro, like 19, kind of 60s, 70s actor. He did the voice of, like, quite a few Disney characters as well, like Prince John in um, Robin Hood. I don't know if you ever saw that. As a, yes, anyway. I, and of he course, said, yeah. he's, he's sort of from all over the place. And he said, you know, when, when he's in Russia and they ask him where he's from, he says England. And when he's in England and they ask him where he's from, he says Russia. And I've always felt a bit of that, you know. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I always feel a bit contrary on it somehow, you know. It's like when I'm in the U US, I find myself being, for example, very proud of my British heritage and, you know, reading the Times and, and all of that stuff. And as soon as I'm back in the UK, I'm a bit like, oh, God, Silicon Valley, everything's so great over there. You know, they have, like, flying cars or whatever. And it's just, I don't know. So I Do they? No, I haven't seen that before. Oh. That's what that's what I expected it to be like. It was disappointing. It's I, all like I, I went to San Francisco uh, ten years ago for the first time, and I just had exactly that image: flying cars and golden paths, and you know. And then there was just so many people that were sleeping on the street, and I, I just couldn't comprehend the difference between what I'd read and heard and what I saw. Um, yeah, it's surprising. Yeah, it, it is surprising. But then you get into the detail of why, you know, that's a whole different subject. But it's because there's actually a good welfare system there that helps people. So a lot of people from the US go to the San Francisco because of that, right? Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, how, how do you transfer into where you are today? I, I do find it fascinating. So w w what made you leave the UK? Because um, from what I can see, you were in the UK, uh, well, up till 2014, 15, I can see. But you tell me, when did you leave? So we were a bit back and forth. So my, in 2013, my wife was offered a, a really amazing job at Genentech, which is a big biotech company in Silicon Valley. Uh, she's a bio, molecular biologist. So, and my company at that time, I had a bootstrap business um, that was doing really well, actually, but they had a tiny team and didn't require us to be based anywhere. And so we just thought, why not go for it and kind of go to Silicon Valley? But my daughter then was 18 months old. So she was at that kind of age where, you know, it was quite, she wasn't in a school or anything. So we moved out here in 2013, uh, quite sort of impulsively, really, um, just to kind of, because I, I was in the internet, I just always felt like, you know, being in Silicon Valley at some point, I'd want to do that. Um, and so we moved out and very quickly after that, 
coincidentally, we ended up setting up Eve based in the UK. And then it, it sort of started to grow and grow and grow. And then by 2016, 17, it started to be a bit untenable for me as the CEO to be out in California surfing, you know, while the whole company was really in London. It was a miracle I was allowed to do it, but it was because the, the, the other founders were my sort of two best friends and my cousins. So I guess they were sort of... I don't know, okay with it somehow, but I was coming over to the UK a lot and eventually it just started to feel a bit silly really. And so we moved back with my family in 2017, Eve went public. Uh, and then a year after that, I got kicked out of Eve, uh, a year after the IPO. And so it, it happened around the summertime, I remember, I think it was like June or August or something, or July or August when I, I got the boot. And because we had kids and for us, it was like, you know, we had to make a decision on their school. It was too sudden to kind of move them back here. Uh, to the US well we'd kept our house and we'd always been quite happy and so we just said you know let's do it next year let's kind of get them into school again they went my daughter went back into the school she was at before um, and so yeah and so we uh, we ended up moving back to our old house uh, a year and a half ago or nearly two years ago now mm. uh, so we've been back and forth really from mm. 2013 but spent two of those years in London and the rest here Mm, interesting it's uh you know thank you first of all for being so open about eve i think so many people you know would be like i, I handed in my resignation you know like um it's interesting when people are kind of open about uh, being kicked out i guess of their own business um what, what, what yeah. was, without going back on old old ground um eve is such a big name right i mean it's, it's quite a high profile thing to have happened to you how 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 what is the lessons from that experience um you know, firstly, I mean, I guess there was a lesson of just learning how to build something like that, which was really exciting. I mean, I think you never quite know with a business, like whether you have a business model or not, and you sort of put it live. And for whatever reason, that thing just exploded, you know, and it just worked really almost from the get go and just grew and grew and grew. And for the first like two, three years of it, it just it was almost like we didn't hit any barriers. It just kept getting better, like bigger and bigger and we kept hitting our numbers and metrics and everything was great. Um, so we had a great learning in terms of how to build a company, in terms of how to hire people, structure things, obviously how to raise money, you know, how to build a brand was something that was really exciting, something we'd never done before. Um, and then, and then I guess, you know, made learnings about for me, you know, a lot of the things that went wrong were were quite structural. I, I think the category is difficult. It's there's a lot of mattress companies out there. They're all quite similar. When we started, we were the first guys, so it was quite an innovative and disruptive model. But now, buying a mattress online is almost as complicated as buying it in store. I think because there's so many brands. Eve benefited. I, I don't follow it as much now. When we were there, it benefited from having an incredible brand awareness and just you know it was known so much. So I think that gave us a little bit of a a buffer between us and, and the other companies. I get the sense now they're all closer together and maybe even Eve's fallen behind some of the other guys a little bit. Although, like I say, I don't I don't follow it too closely. Um, so I think, you know, there were learnings about just thinking more about the type of business you're going to build and what it could look like in 10 years and what sort of competitive advantages you have and how is it going to be different from potential competitors and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so that was... Um, uh, that 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 was some learning that we really took into this business now is to think much more before going into it, it's like what it can become and what makes it interesting and and you know and and how to keep it unique. So that was one. I think there was an arrogance that came from Eve with all of us, especially me. I think it just kind of grew so quickly, 
uh, that we started to feel a bit like almost we could do no wrong. And, and you get a bit sloppy from that. You know, you just kind of go, I'll be fine. You know, things will work out. And I think... I think there was that. And, and I think also, you know, in all honesty, we the mattress thing started in 2011, me and my two buddies, the guys who we started Eve with, uh, minus my cousin at that stage, we put a deal on Groupon. Uh, we, we had the idea to put a mattress deal on Groupon. We didn't have any mattresses, didn't have really money to buy them or anything, but we, we, we knew where we could get them. We knew the pricing, there were huge margins on it. So we just put some built a website, put it on Groupon. And it ended up becoming, I think it still is, the biggest ever Groupon deal. We did $2 million of revenue on our first day, so 6,000 mattresses. And obviously we're completely unprepared for that on any level. We were not prepared to handle the customer services. We didn't have money to buy the products. We didn't have a logistics solution. You know, it, it was a bit of a nightmare, but, um, but, but from that, but then, so we, we sort of overnight were mattress entrepreneurs really. And then, and the scale of it and the speed of it all the way through to the Eve IPO meant that we had seven years in that business, but it wasn't like we had sat down beforehand and said, you know, what do I want to spend the next, 20 years of my life doing you know it's selling mattresses we just kind of fell into it and I think that over time I think we were all just a bit bored of it you know after seven eight years of doing it I think we'd felt like we kind of done it you know we've, we've like IPO this business we had it bootstrap for a while and profitable and then we got really big we internationalized it we hired all these amazing people we, we, we did TV as all these things that I kind of wanted to do we sort of did and then it, I think there was just an element of slight fatigue or boredom that started to set in and it was like the, the realization that we might be doing this now we, what, what else is that you know we're taking it public it's been such a glamorous startup but is that it now you know is are we just going to be running a mattress company for the next 10 years and so i think probably the board started to see in all of the founders a little bit of a loss of motivation you know and a bit less drive than we'd had and, and i think that was one of the reasons as well why me especially but we were all sort of phased out quite soon after that um so yeah so i think the learnings were not to believe your own hype a little bit you know to be a bit more humble to really i think the speed of the sort of collapse of it all from a personal point of view in terms of you know i, I was fired and basically left the building that day and never went back and it was totally friendly it wasn't like an unpleasant thing but it was just so sudden from we all felt like this kind of like golden startup you know to being like unemployed like overnight i think that makes you realize that this stuff is quite like i was saying at the beginning you know the ups and you know it's never as good as you think it's never as bad as you think but just the to have that humility that it could be over at any point and so to really just stay focused and stay in it kind of you know i think was quite a big one uh, and like i said as well earlier just to really pick the type of business you're going into and try and think about what that could look like in five years ten years and not just chase the kind of early success you know which is what we kind of did as well such an interesting story there's a such an amazing book in this for you i think um, <laughs> we a- said that my cousin that we love to write it you know i think just we're very close to my older cousin and we we ended up starting the company together he did the branding bit so he was there because the eve was so much about the brand and the advertising and all of that um i think uh you know he he was like a co-ceo really for, for me you know we kind of very much ran that business together and we we always said you know one day we should write a book on this because there were so many incredible experiences in it but i don't know it was interesting for us i don't know if anyone else would find it interesting I, i'd buy it definitely- i'm gonna i'm gonna have a very popular <laughs> podcast because of it i think but uh, i i guess you could also you know, call it going to the mattresses you know like the godfather yeah, thing godfather that, that, that joke must have been well. flown around a million times i bet you've never heard that before We've heard lots of mattress puns and jokes. Yeah. Uh, what's your favourite one? You remember? Uh, 
can't remember. It's, you know, Let's it's sleep on it. Years. Come on, that must have come up a few times. <laughs> yeah, a lot around that. But how did you um, how did you transition to what you're doing now? Because I, I think you know the great thing about having all the experience you've got, um, and I can see um, again the numbers on paper doesn't mean anything, but it seems like you've taken a pause between things at moments. You know, like so I can see after Eve, um, it looks like you've taken a year to really think about what next. I'm just guessing, looking at the numbers, you do tell us. But is, is that how do you prepare for what you're doing now, and and how did you know this was a thing to do, and 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 why this thing? I mean, it's you know, again, very random, really. We when we left Eve, a bunch of the early investors made a lot of money at the IPO. So people who sort of invested in the early rounds of Eve, and then obviously sold around the IPO or soon after, made a lot of money. And so for those guys, we were just like a great success story. Even though obviously for the IPO people, we were you know idiots and failures whatever else it kind of depends where you come in on that arc but um so they were they were really wanting to do another business with us and we're basically saying we'll give you money like let's just do something else and they were sending us ideas and which is obviously a dream scenario to be in and one of the one of the ideas that we were sent was in the u.s there was a company called hymns which you might have heard of they're like uh, it's been copied quite a lot in the uk now but they were sort of direct-to-consumer companies specializing in embarrassing men's products like hair loss treatments and things, things that you might not want to go and buy in person. And their hero product was Viagra. And HIMS became also the, the chemical generic compound for Viagra, and they branded it nicely and moved away from the kind of ads of like old guy with erectile dysfunction and his wife looking miserable in bed kind of thing to sort of young lifestyle brand focused on sex and i thought that was quite interesting we decided we didn't want to do that business because we didn't want to be sending pharmaceuticals and we thought it might have some of the same structural problems of eve of not that defensible a bunch of other people coming in at least with eve you can sort of optimize and try and differentiate yourself on the product but you know viagra is like a chemical compound it's literally there's just a brand around that that's your only uh thing really and in good execution and we just figured everybody would get a good brand because there's a lot of great branding agencies and everybody would execute okay because there's a lot of smart people out there and so we didn't really feel that there was something there that made us think you know this could long term be a win um but we became quite interested in the category and as we were sort of as we started sort of to talk with people about it, we, we went out to a bunch of sex therapists initially and just started to ask about erectile dysfunction and as we were kind of researching the thing i've become much more comfortable talking about this stuff i used to find it very embarrassing but um uh and we, there, there were sort of two things, actually, which, I, which just blew my mind. The first is that one in four adults have a sexual dysfunction. So the, the most common of these are erectile dysfunction, a lot of people know about because of Viagra and et cetera. Another one is premature ejaculation, and another one is women who can't orgasm. I mean, 10% of women have never had an orgasm. You know, it's, it's pretty stark when you think about the numbers involved in that and and when you hear about these things they're quite pathologized you feel they're quite niche that it's like oh that girl's a bit weird i heard she can't orgasm or whatever kind of thing but actually these are very common and quite painful conditions for people that people live with and and the second thing we found out was that sex therapy is incredibly effective at treating these things so to give you an example of the um, maybe 15 million women in the US who have never had an orgasm before. 92% can learn to orgasm simply by being given written masturbation exercises and talk through those with a sex therapist. And 80% of those can take that into partnered sex. And there are similar stats around 
the, the, the effectiveness of sex therapy for treating performance anxiety, of cognitive behavioral therapy for treating premature ejaculation. And so, so what we found is that you have this enormous issue, this enormous category of things that afflict so many people. And you have actually a really effective solution, but they're not matched in a very efficient way. Because firstly, if you have one of these things, you probably don't realize it's very common. Secondly, you, uh, you, 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 you probably don't know it's treatable. And thirdly, even if you do, it's quite embarrassing to go and sit with somebody and say, hey, I've got erectile dysfunction. Can you help? Um, can you hear me? I think it's frozen. Yeah, no, I can hear you. I can hear you. I'm finding it fascinating, so I'm just quiet. Oh, sorry. Um, I thought you froze for a second. And, um, and, uh, and, and then it's expensive. Like, so if you're going to see a therapist in San Francisco, at the lower end, you'll pay 300 bucks an hour, and you'll probably have to do 10 sessions plus. So what our idea became was like, it just felt like this fascinating idea. Like, could you take what sex therapists do and put it into a digital product, similar to like a headspace or a calm, a little bit more outcome focused and a bit more kind of like, you know, here's a 10 week course for, for this particular issue than general wellness product with unclear outcome, but, but still kind of similar in the sense that, you know, there is this similar to meditation or mindfulness, that content is out there, right? It's not that it's, it's not like the guys at Headspace invented mindfulness. It's that they brought it to the to a big audience, and so I guess we're trying to do something similar with sex and sexual health, really. Um, and and then there's like a second category of what we're doing, which is 25% of people have a sexual dysfunction, but another 25% of people have a sexual complaint, which is basically they're not happy with their sex life and in, in their relationship. So it could be, you know, one in three people have a sexless marriage, for example, or um, could be uh, libido discrepancies between the couple where one partner has a high sex drive than the other. And again, there are very effective techniques for increasing your sex drive. Uh, or it could be just boredom or shitty sex or maybe wanting to open up your relationship or issues of fidelity or all these kind of things that I think couples, and especially in long-term relationships, struggle with. We just thought it would be so interesting to try and put that into a digital product, you know, and make it and sort of democratize it a little bit. And we met this incredible therapist who, um, well, much more than a therapist, but she's a clinical psychologist specializing in sexual medicine. She's part of the behavioral medicine uh, board, faculty board at Stanford, and has the largest independent mental health clinic in Northern California. And we just hit it off incredibly well with her. Uh, and she joined us as, um, as a co-founder. And, and sort of, and, and she's brought to the company all the kind of credibility and content and everything that happens in the sort of in the therapy world. And we've brought like, how do you put that into a digital product and build a brand around it? So it's been a really, really fun project to try and figure out together. Because I think both sides, for both sides, the other side was quite new. You know, I think for her, kind of seeing a digital product build was quite exciting. For us, just having an, sort of an insight into that world of sex therapy has been fascinating as well. It seriously is fascinating. Your video's gone off, by the way. I don't know. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. No. Uh, that, that's absolutely fascinating. I, um, I, I, I had no idea just how, um, how much you were covering there. You know what st struck me, and I, I hope this isn't too personal, but, um, but uh, I, I find, you know, you said earlier about, you know, what you're doing isn't as interesting as what your father did. But actually, your father was, was saving people, helping people. Um, you're doing the same. You know, I, 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 I know, I, I feel like it might not sound the same, uh, but actually it's the same. 
Because I, I know um, I've got three brothers. They've all divorced, and and a lot of the reasons they're divorced is to do with their sexual uh, quirks. And, and so um, I think that uh, you know the statue just thrown out there blow my mind. But I think actually this not only keeps marriages together, which keeps families together, which can often, and we all know the stats, lead to stability for, for a human being, a young human being in particular. Uh, and then uh, on the other side, I mean, frankly, you might literally be helping people have the next Einstein, you know, and, and be able to actually have a relationship and, and feel confident to have a relationship and, and which, you know, could lead to, you know, having the next Einstein born in this world. So I think, I think what you're doing, although um, I know on the face of it you know um with a with a, a company name like lover it might it might not seem so serious and it, it shouldn't i think you're doing the right branding approach there um, but but equally i think it's actually quite quite important i actually do do completely agree on the importance of it but you know i have to be honest for me i kind of came into it a little bit more with a business hat on and just thinking this is such an interesting category to build a company in and but we have been quite inspired i guess by the stories we hear of how this helps people and we were that from day one that was something that Brittany told us you know the therapist co-founder of ours or clinical psychologist co-founder of ours she said that when people come into her office you know they're quite these these conditions they cause quite serious pain you know in relationships you know people saying like i'm scared to have sex with my wife because i've got erectile dysfunction and i don't you know i don't i don't know how to talk about it and you know crying on her couch and then and she'll say like you know within like three weeks, four weeks, they'll be coming in with their partner and talking about how they had sex for the first time in years or how, you know, and she can sort of see them on the couch getting closer with each session, like in a movie, you know, and it's quite life-changing stuff. So I, I, we've sort of seen that as we've gone into this world and we've seen it from the kind of reviews and customer feedbacks we get and it is very, very inspiring. So um, I massively admire people like Brittany, really, who has dedicated her life, really, to trying to help people with, with these kind of conditions. And I've found it... Um, it's 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 inspiring to be involved in something where um, where that is a kind of outcome, you know. No, it it is, and that sounds like a doctor's bell for someone to come into the room. I don't know why, but I can't seem to turn off iMessage on my computer. Don't worry, don't worry. I, I like it. It's now it's now feeling therapeutic to me. It's all good. Just out of interest, because uh, I had this experience myself. How did you trademark the company name Lover? Well, we had a bit of an issue because of Taylor Swift uh, and the song. Um, so there were some things we can do, but ultimately you have to, we had to do quite narrow, you know, on the definition. I can't remember which classes we did it in, but effectively there's no other digital therapeutic. A word in a dictionary, which is also hard to protect, right? I mean, you must have had a similar problem with Eve, really. Yeah, Eve was hard as well. There's, there's other things. And then you get random ones. And we were trying to trademark Eve. There was a hotel in Estonia that made their own pillow line and it was called the Eve Hotel. And so they trademarked Eve for bedding across the whole of Europe. And we had to sort of fight with them. I mean, Taylor Swift was obviously a more challenging opponent, but weirdly it was never called up. You know, you submit the trademark and you just kind of wait and hope no one notices. And then you get to the point where it's yours, you know? And so we have it now, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's uh, an asset on its own. But I, I, I had the opposite problem. I had a business called Foodie and, uh, and, and my listeners already know this because I mentioned it a few times, but, um, but we got a cease and desist letter three years into the business. We're like, oh, we didn't even know. Um, because sometimes you sit around the table, you come up with a good name. Uh, and, and, and you get the website address uh, and then you register the company. You think that's it, sorted, um, without we realising. We were advised to trademark because I think that's such a nightmare to have to rebrand everything. Totally. So, you know. yeah, um, totally. And it's obviously one of those things as an early stage company, there's so many things that you don't want to do. You know, it's, like it's another five, 10 grand or whatever you have to put out, find lawyers totally. and all this stuff. Well, it's also and, the threat of the business. There's a big threat. If you, with the company that's suing you, if you've done well, they actually have the right to claim all your past income. 
I know that's that's kind of stuff we heard, and we went in both cases for generic, very generic names, and even lover. And so, mm. uh, so we would just advise. I can't remember by who, but normally I'm a bit, you know, a bit uh, blasé with stuff like that. Like I'll be fine. We'll sort it out later. But that felt like an important thing to do, and I'm glad we did it with both. Touching on co-founders for a second, because a lot of my audience ask about this, you know, if they've got a business idea, should they get a co-founder or, you know, is it a good idea, two, three founders, you know, what, what's your view on all of that? I know you're, you're presently in partnership, you, you mentioned, uh, I forgot her name then, sorry, I've forgotten the name, and, and Nick. Brittany and Nick, yeah, Brittany yeah. and Nick. Yeah. I think three is a great number. It, it becomes very easy for kind of just, if there's any disagreement, you can vote. If there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a small enough group that you can kind of get everyone aligned behind ideas. You can have a veto if somebody's really adamant they don't want to do something. So it's a nice number. I think as it gets bigger, it just becomes more cumbersome and it's hard to make decisions. When we have four at Eve, obviously a lot of the time you get two against two and then it's like, I guess as the CEO, you have to kind of call it, but that's not so nice having to, you know, to, to, to go away from that kind of founding closeness. So, um, so yeah, so I think three is a really good number. I think definitely, I think having co-founders is great. Like I think there's so many times that things get hard and I've found that always, it always feels like one, one of you at least is kind of up and positive and like, we can do this. And so you get these days where you're like, you know, you're just like, I can't handle this. I and mean, it's so hard. This will never work. And then, and then one of your co-founders will always seem to pop up and be like, yeah, like we can do it and be the kind of positive one. And likewise, it will be the other way around. And so I think just having that kind of positive energy in there helps. And I think it's also more fun. I mean, like for me, a large part of startups and doing this is just because I enjoy doing it, you know, and, and doing it with friends and people you like and being able to pick those people is such a big part of it versus going to work at another company. Like I think it's one of the main, for me at least, the advantages of like Greek, almost like recreating a kind of, culture of your friends but at work you know and i always loved starting companies either with people i knew who were friends or you know people that you meet and that you really connect with in a good way and think similar and kind of just want to hang out with and so that work becomes just a place you want to go to and spend time because you like the people then because your friends are there so for me i think it's really crucial i'm gonna have to shoot i'm afraid because i got to call at 10 unless there was anything else that um no that, that's uh, it we uh we we thank you for your time exactly an hour and uh really appreciate the insights and the stories um i guess one quick question would be if you went back to your younger self and gave some advice what would it be uh God, invest in bitcoin maybe i don't know uh, buy, buy shares <laughs> was it around when you were young you're not that young anymore when I was young, but I, I could have happily done it when I was like 25 and been good now, you know. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think um, I think it's been I don't know if I've had any sort of like major learnings that transformed everything. It was just like this quite iterative slog startups, you know, and it's just like you kind of slowly just gain more experience in it and you keep going, keep going. But I, I don't know if there's anything that particularly stands out. It's like I wish I'd known that earlier. I think you just almost have to keep making mistakes, keep learning from them, keep just keep going you know yeah, your past self would be pretty annoyed if you turned up and that's what you said i think it'd be like you've got all this knowledge tell me something well you know buy bitcoin when it comes up <laughs> honestly that that would have been worth more than anything else i could say I that's think. true so, yeah. well what a wonderful story great insights and thank you so much for joining and are you on clubhouse I was really invited to it yesterday for the first. I haven't signed up yet, but someone sent me an invite. Yeah, so yesterday. join join up and, um, and we'll go. We'll jump over to Clubhouse and people can come and ask you questions there. You're going to love it, I think. It's a really interesting app. So let's jump over to there and have a conversation there, Q&A with people uh, around this. But thank you so much for joining today and sharing your knowledge. Absolutely awesome. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Have a good have day. Have a good day. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Purposeful Project podcast today. If you got any value from this podcast, then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback. And if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real-life successful entrepreneur, then feel free to share. And of course, go and visit purposefulproject.com and join our mailing list at any point. Thanks again for listening.